Hello and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of cycling performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. Today we have another fantastic Q&A episode with a diverse range of questions. Our guest coach this week, Julie Young, who has appeared before on Fast Talk, episode 91 to be exact. Julie is a former professional cyclist turned coach. Her road racing career stretched over a decade with teams including Saturn and Timex. She continues to race today at a very high level across multiple disciplines and is currently part of the talented team behind the Kaiser Permanente Sports Medicine Endurance Lab in California. On to the questions. Eric Olsen from Aarhus, Denmark asks about time to exhaustion and the true definition of fatigue. Luis Rondo in San Jose wonders if there is a quote, currency exchange between adaptation and recuperation. Ruben Kudri in Bristol in the UK has some goals far in the future, so he wants to know when the goal is a long way away and he doesn't need to peak until three years from now. Is there a more optimal way to train for maximizing fitness? Clemens Plasser in Vienna, Austria asks about glycogen use during exercise, the different exogenous and endogenous sources, and how each is utilized. We have some nutrition questions as well. Dan Draper in Salt Lake City ponders whether he'd be faster if he cut back or eliminated grains from his diet. James McKay in Yorkshire, England wants to know if a greater fat intake will help him improve performance and health. And finally, Tom Marr in Horwich in the UK has questions about changes to heart rate in relation to power as he makes his way back from injury. All that and much more today on Fast Talk. Let's make you fast. This episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from your workouts and the normal stressors of life. Trevor, I know there's a lot of tools out there to measure how stressful your training is, but what about all that other stuff in life that can uh, be stressful and wear you down? How do you measure that? What is Whoop good at that? Measuring that? Well, it's a really important thing because when you are talking about recovery, stress is stress. You can't factor out life stress when you are trying to look at the overall stress on your body. You got a good laugh out of this last week because, as you know, we were trying to launch a website. We had a couple weeks there where I was probably at the office past midnight, way too many nights very stressed, working really hard, and that website launched on Tuesday. And I came into work at Wednesday and showed you and Jana my recovery score on Whoop, which was 1%. <laughs> and how much riding had you been doing up to that point? Well, my trading's been going down, so that's the whole thing. I, if you look at my overall trading stress, it's been going down. Mm -hmm. But I had a huge amount of life stress, and even when I woke up on Wednesday morning, I actually was kind of like, I'm feeling pretty good. I went out and actually did a, a off-the-bike conditioning workout, came into the office and, and kind of laughed about it, said, hey, take a look at this. I have a 1% and wasn't fully buying it at the time. That night, I went home. I was exhausted. As you know, by Thursday and Friday, I was—I looked like an 80-year-old walking zombie. around the office. Zombie Trevor. It caught it it picked up on it and it was really interesting actually looking at so whoop will map out 
your, it'll show you 24 hours heart rate variability, show you your heart rate. And it was fascinating to look at back at that because it wasn't just, you got a 1%, oh well. I was able to look at why is it saying this. So I was able to, it had a sleep score. I could look at my sleep score. I was able to look at my sleep pattern. And one of the things I noticed was my heart rate was insanely high that whole night while I was sleeping. Heart rate variability was really low. Uh, you could see all these trends that I wasn't feeling, that I wasn't able to pick up on. And sure enough, day later, I collapsed. I just absolutely fell apart. Whoop is offering 15% off with the code FASTTALK. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K at checkout. Go to Whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P.com and enter FASTTALK at checkout to save 15% sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter. Optimize your performance with Luke. Well, welcome back to the program, Julie Young. It's been since episode 91 that we had Julie on, and uh, it's a pleasure to have you back. Thanks for joining us. Super excited to be invited back. I appreciate it. Well, we've got a list of really interesting questions today covering a range of topics. Shall we dive straight into this one? We've got a lot, so let's do this. We got some interesting questions, and this is again. I think we said this in the last Q and A. There are some questions here where it's really more coaching opinion, coaching experience. So I'm looking forward to them. I, I hope Julie and I have some different perspectives. And what I, I'll say the same thing I said before, which is uh, there may not be a right or wrong. You, if we have two different opinions, try both. Julie's probably right, but what I say might <laughs> yeah. be might actually work for you too. Great. Well, let's start off with one from a listener in Aarhus, Denmark. His name is Eric Olson, and he asks, say you are doing subthreshold work at 85% of FTP for a prolonged period of time. Could be to exhaustion. If you did a lactate test every 20 minutes, I would assume that the readings would be fairly constant. Is this correct? If indeed it is correct, is my fatigue a pure result of energy depletion? If not, what determines our time to exhaustion at a given wattage? Julie, do you want to start with some thoughts here? So, I mean, I would I would assume the, the primary cause of exhaustion at that effort would be just the, the fuel, the carbohydrate depletion. And then I would also suggest that perhaps the lactate buildup and the, the hydrogen ions associated with that lactate buildup, um, inhibiting the muscle contraction. But that's, that's would be, would be my, my first guess. Um, I think, you know, for me, it's interesting that in, in the lab and doing these, these metabolic efficiency tests, um, and that's the fact that, you know, you really can become more efficient and that there's not these, these formulas that necessarily apply is, is what I've experienced. Um, you know, this oftentimes will say like, you know, at this percentage, you're burning this, this type of fuel, but it's so individually dependent. There's ways to, to improve these abilities in terms of, of fuel utilization. Um, but what do you think, Trevor? We talked about something similar a few episodes ago about what is fatigue. And actually, I looked for this study last night, or review. I, I read a review when I was in school 
that tried to identify what is the cause of fatigue. And basically the, what the review said is, here's 12 potential causes of fatigue. And what it came down to, the, the commonality is, think of fatigue as a loss of homeostasis. Once your body can't maintain some aspect of its physiology imbalance, it basically shuts you down. So that's, that's fatigue. So there isn't one cause, it's just that loss. I've heard you say before, though, in a theoretical sense, if you were riding at a given intensity, and maybe it was less than this 85% of FTP that Eric has identified, but that you could theoretically last forever, assuming you were fueling properly because your muscle fibers could continue to operate. And this 85% of FTP is important because, well, there is huge individual variance when you talk about the two thresholds. And so that lower threshold, that aerobic threshold, where theoretically, yes, you can go forever, is often placed right about 85% of your anaerobic threshold or FTP, right. which is a, analogous. So he is asking, basically, if you're at the top end of this intensity, it's supposed to allow you to go forever. Uh, yeah, uh, you do it mostly on fat. Fat is, for all intents and purposes, unless you want to ride straight for three weeks, <laughs> unlimited. So fuel, so th in theory, fuel availability would not be an issue. In practice, yeah, no, you're going to burn glucose. Eventually, you're going to bonk if you're not repleting. Uh, but something is going to eventually fatigue you. And it's the, my answer to the question is that's going to be very individual. It depends all these different aspects of your homeostasis. How well trained are they? And for one person, one aspect of their homeostasis is going to shut down first. For another person, it might be a different one. I made some a list of potentials of, yes, fuel availability is still a potential. Uh, and Julie, you brought that up. Muscle damage mm -hmm. is another. Dehydration. Uh, going back to Noakes's central control hypothesis, mm -hmm. essentially just mental fatigue. Right. Shutting you down. Uh, even something that a lot of people don't consider is postural fatigue. If you're sitting in a position, let's say you're not positioned well on your bike or you're not used to being in that position, your back muscles might start to seize up or, or weaken and just not be able to hold that position. You might not have the best shoes and eventually your feet are going to start really hurting. Right, right. There's a lot of things that can contribute to that fatigue. The other thing I think is interesting is if it is a fuel depletion, how like the, the, the lack of carbohydrates can inhibit the calcium release, and then that can then inhibit the muscle activity. So, yeah, exactly, Trevor, so many, so many factors in play. So do you want to talk a little more about that inhibit the calcium release? I actually brought up some studies. Um, I kind of pulled a, pulled a page out of your playbook, Trevor. Uh-oh. Um, Uh-oh. <laughs> I did not come well armed today. You're going to beat me up. No. I, yeah, I, I, felt, I followed in your footsteps. In these studies, they don't really go into the particulars of that. They just note that as one of the factors or the contributing factors to, to fatigue. So without going too deep into muscle physiology, basically every single time that a muscle contracts, it releases 
calcium from the, the oh god we were joking before we got on here that chris is going to find things i can't pronounce we've already found one the <laughs> sarcoplasmic reticulum did i get yeah, that right yeah pretty close so it's going to release calcium into the cytosol of the the muscle fiber that allows the contraction and then it sucks all that calcium back up and every single time that muscle contracts it goes through this process but as you get some muscle damage, its ability to release that calcium, suck it back up, gets reduced or diminished. Um, and that can really contribute to fatigue. And if, you, if it gets bad where you, the calcium is released and just stays in the cell, then you're going to start to cramp. Muscle isn't going to be able to relax anymore. So Trevor... You think it's more the, the, the sucking up of the calcium as opposed to the availability of calcium for the cross-bridging? Like, you think it's more the sucking up? I think this is where we're getting to something really complex, and I think it's multiple. So I, okay. I, I agree on both fronts. I, I have read personally about as you fatigue, uh, so on, on really long rides, the ability to take the this calcium back into the sarcoplasmic reticulum gets reduced. So you, you see less than optimal muscle firing after that. But certainly, yes, also the availability of calcium would be a factor as well. Mm -hmm. It seems like kind of a simple question on the surface of things. Why do I get tired if I'm riding at a you know, relatively moderate pace? But the answer is really complex, and we could spend all day talking about the different mechanisms by which you would uh, get fatigued. Yeah. So, but we shall leave it there. That was a pretty good answer for Eric in Denmark. Um, let's move on to another question. This one's perhaps a little abstract. It comes from Luis Arondo in San Jose, California. He wonders if there is a quote-unquote currency exchange between adaptation and recuperation. Uh, here is his question. How do I know when enough is enough? when a long zone one ride has triggered adaptation without the need for excessive recuperation. And I'm going to assume he's talking zone one in a three zone model. So we're talking, you know, below the aerobic threshold, but there is some uh, effort going into the pedals here. Is it when my normalized power starts to descend relative to my consistent heart rate in these long rides? Is it a half hour or an hour after I see cardiac drift? Are there levels of adaptation supercompensation? And how do I find out how much adaptation I have triggered compared to the level of needed recuperation? Is there, again, a quote-unquote currency exchange of adaptation versus recuperation that can be quantified? Trevor, do you, A, does that make sense to you? Do you know what uh, Luis is asking here? So I will start by saying I actually have to be careful about what I say because Dr. Seiler is actually writing or wrote a whole paper about this. Okay. And he did ask me to read it over, and he has not published it yet, mm. so I don't want to steal any of his thunder. <laughs> All those secrets are stored in your head. Yeah. So I'll just give the, the short answer of my own opinion of it before I read his paper, and his paper goes into it a lot more detail, which is, yes, another thing that can contribute to cardiac drift is dehydration. 
But I do believe that if you are staying in a high, relatively hydrated state, when you see cardiac drift, that is a, a symptom of fatigue. So when you are, for years now, when I had my athletes go out and do these long rides where I wanted to see some sort of adaptation, uh, I wanted to see some cardiac drift. And part of how I could determine their aerobic fitness or their ability to sustain these long rides is how long they could go before you quite literally just see them fall off of this wall where heart rate and power would stay relatively consistent with one another and then they just hit a point and heart rate would start skyrocketing mm. relative to power. So I do believe that when you're talking just about a long ride, that is one of the ways you can determine that, yes, I've now done some stress, I've pushed the body a little beyond its limits, and, and I can get an adaptation out of this. But it's probably pretty hard to say, yeah, go to that point where the two start to drift apart from one another, go 30 minutes more, and then stop your ride. It's not that simple. There's no formula for, for such a thing. This is where I'm going to bite my lip. Okay. <laughs> okay. Julie, do you have any thoughts? In terms of teasing out all this information, it's important to you know, think big picture and stick with a good program and not try to, I, I think you still, you can't shortcut the process and you can't shortcut the, the recovery. So I guess, you know, I, I don't know if it's that kind of off subject, but I just think it's like sometimes it's hard to tease out these particulars and i think if you if you if you stay diligent with the program it 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 works it works out in terms of the recuperation and the adaptation i want to take this kind of a step further because i did hear some general questions about adaptation and supercompensation in, in the question and julie you might have a, a, a lot more thoughts about this uh, i'll just give my kind of one minute thought which is there is no metric, there is no graph that says, you have now done enough stress, now you need to recover. And there's no graph that says, you've now done enough recovery to super adapt. Uh, I think it's highly individual. I could write up a training program, give it to one athlete, it would be perfect. Give it to another athlete, it wouldn't be enough. Give it to a third athlete and it would kill them. Everybody is different in terms of how much stress, how much recovery they, they need. And I don't think you can just quantify it, put a number on it. I think it comes much more down to you have to learn the feels. You have to learn to say, okay, now I've got that feeling to tell me it's time to recover. Or when you go out and do a workout, get that feeling of, okay, I've done enough. Mm -hmm. I don't need to do another interval. Julie, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. I, I I think, you know, we've, we've talked about this, that there's, there's so much data, but it's it, data doesn't tell the whole story and it does become an art. And to your point, like with those three athletes, it's not only the physical tolerance, but it's the mental, emotional tolerance. And, you know, I, the same, you know, you have these athletes that, that some are just so durable and others are more fragile and just understanding each one of those individual athletes. And then also that partnership with the athlete that, you know, it really is their feedback and in, in that allowing you to help them, you know, guide them on this process. But, um, you know, I'm just such a firm believer that we just have to, we have to be patient with this process. And I think a lot of times we try to force it and try to do more and try to push. And, you know, we just have to appreciate that this really is a process and you, 
you work hard and you rest hard. And there's really, you can't accelerate that. I think the one suggestion I have for every athlete out there is keep a journal. You have to try different things and you have to see what works for you. And the the most, what was eye-opening for me, the most visual example of this I ever experienced is when I was training in Victoria. Uh, I had a friend who was a, a frequent training partner with me. We were about equal level cyclists. So I, this story is not about, oh, I'm, I'm stronger than him. I was not. We were about equal. He was more the sprinter type rider, though. I'm much more the endurance, I like to just put my head down and go hard type rider. And we were both building to the Mount Hood stage race. And he asked to train with me for the full three week building up to it. Because I'd had a couple pretty good years there. So he's like, I want to try what you're doing, Trevor. So he came and trained with me every day. And by the time we got to Mount Hood, he had to quit after the second day. I had a good race because it was the right build for me. It was not the right build for him. Mm -hmm. And he did really well there later, but he did really well there later when he found the right build for him. And that's why I said there is no right answer to this question. You have to find what's right for you. As you were describing that exchange between you know data for how hard you've ridden and data for how, how well you've been recovered, it, it honestly, it sounds like um, what Whoop is attempting to to do with their product. And I know, Trevor, you wear it and um, you you work with athletes that wear it as well. Is it helping you guide decision-making around what Luis is asking here in this in this question? Well, let me just say what, what I've seen. Because, yeah, I'm using a whoop strap myself now. I have several athletes who, who use it. And it has shown what I've, I've kind of intuited from myself and from some of my athletes. So with me, what I have learned about the way I train is I actually have to go pretty deep into the stress pain cave to get an adaptation. Mm -hmm. So that's why that friend of mine didn't do well at Mount Hood because he tried to do what I do and I go deep, but I can come out of it. Again, there's downsides of that, of any time I want to be strong, I have to rip myself apart. Be nice to not have to do that. So you see, when I, I have worn a whoop strap, well, I've done what I know works for me. And it's just sitting there saying, you're in the yellow, you're in the red, you need recovery. So I'm aware of the fact that, no, that's kind of the way I need to train. Uh, but then get back to the green before I'm racing. I have another athlete who I kind of intuited before he started using a whoop strap that he's more that other type of athlete that he can't go very deep into the pain cave, but just a couple days of, of yellow or red and that he'll adapt pretty quickly. And that's what works better for him. And yeah. you see that with the whoop strap with him as well. Are these all experienced cyclists with years and years of miles in their legs? And it's just, yeah. So yeah. With you know, he is a a cat one uh, actually on a, a pro team over in Europe, so I wouldn't say he's amateur. Yeah, and so yeah, I mean that's that's an important point. Going back to that, it isn't a case of as you get higher and higher level, you need to go deeper and deeper and deeper to improve. He is somebody that we need to just hit him a little bit mm -hmm. and then let him recover. But he needs to do less stress, more recovery. Where I have to do a ton of stress very little recovery. 
and it's not in a value. We end up at the same place right. in strength. Yep. It's just how you get there. Yeah, and that's part of the complexity here is it's not a simple, as you have more years uh, or in the sport, how many or more miles under you, it doesn't mean that you're going to build up this tolerance, so to speak. It makes me think of, <laughs> it's a bad analogy in a way, but somebody who drinks often, sometimes, you know, they have to drink more to get the same effect of the alcohol. If you don't drink at all, you have one beer and that's, you know, you're, you've reached your happy place. But that's not true when it comes to training. Some pros don't need to go as deep as you, Trevor, to get to elicit the same response. So you're saying I'm the cycling equivalent of a, a drunk. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Megan, what, what's the cycling equivalent of AA? <laughs> Gosh, I don't know. That's a good question. Because um, I could really use it. EA, Exercisers Anonymous. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you do need it. The first part of what, what's their expression? Ex you have to accept you have a problem. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, I haven't gotten to the first step yet. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, a 12-step program. you got a long way to go, Trevor. This weekend, so we have these horrible fires in Colorado. And actually, I was supposed to go out and visit Julie, but I thought she was in the middle of the fire, so that was not a good idea. But I went for a ride up Flagstaff. My eyes started watering uncontrollably. My throat started hurting. And my thought was not, maybe I should go get inside where it's air-conditioned and clean air. My thought was, maybe if I head north, it'll get better. The last episode, we talked about how you broke your handlebars and you kept riding your bike. You clearly have a problem. No. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. All right. So this next question is all about peaking but peaking three years from now in a hypothetical situation. The question comes from Ruben Codri in Bristol, UK. That is a name that I'm not sure I've pronounced correctly. So we're, we're now even in this episode, Trevor. There's a little setup here. He writes, I have been targeting almost exclusively my aerobic system since March, as I realized that I was pretty aerobically deficient. The results thus far have been insanely positive. I'm not racing at the moment, and I don't have any intention to race in the near future due to my university studies. I would, however, like to compete in full-distance triathlon in the future, and the main reason why I train is actually for high-altitude mountaineering and alpinism, which is more akin to ultra-endurance events or even major stage racing, where long, hard days are stacked back-to-back -back for weeks on end. I intend to finish my university studies in the summer of 2022 and then use the following year until June 2023 to train full-time. My question is this, what is an intelligent way to train for an event like this in terms of intensity distributions? Should I, for example, keep training at around 95, a ratio of 95 to five, I would assume not intense to intense or however you wanna polarize it here, for the first year, as I am still seeing huge gains using this at the moment, then change for the second year to say 90-10, then again for the third year to 80-20. Obviously, there is an infinite number of degrees of freedom. I'm more after a methodology than hard numbers. Or, put another way, when the goal is a long way away and I don't need to peak until three years from now, is there a more optimal way to train for maximizing fitness than, for example, that 80-20 ratio from the start? Shall we start with you, Julie? Sure. So I, I thought this was interesting. I just tested a client in the lab uh, a lactate test and 
he's a relatively new rider and he's been working with the coach and doing primarily an endurance program. And I, I've tested him before and he made just huge gains in his, in the aerobic, um, region. So like minimal lactate, just great lactate clearance and really pushed his, his aerobic threshold pretty darn close to his lactate threshold. So it, it obviously paid off, but his lactate threshold regressed a bit and he, and obviously didn't make any gains in, in his lactate threshold. So I guess I, I feel like you need to, you know, keep increasing that ceiling with, with the lactate threshold and, and take everything to the right. So it seems to me that, it, you know, if he continues just doing what he's doing, he's going to stagnate a bit. So it, it would probably be some time to include some, some sub threshold work, try to push that ceiling to the, you know, that set threshold to the right. Trevor, what would you add here? I, I had almost exactly the same note. So yeah, same idea, just uh, the, the way I would express it is even if you don't have racing, even if you're using this as a build year, we adapt to what you throw at your body. So you have to be careful of saying, well, I don't have any racing, so I don't need to do any race training because if you don't do that work, you might be surprised where your body ends up. And you want an example of that, go out and train with a ride with somebody who's a professional randonneer. Mm. They will out-endure you, but all you have to do is attack them for a minute and they can't do anything because yeah. they don't train that side of their systems at all. So I would say, even though right now you're just trying to build that aerobic system, you still want to keep a balance. And I think that, you know, 95.5, I don't know exactly what you mean by 90, you know, exactly what percentages, how his week looks, but I would say you still want to be getting in some high intensity, as Julie was saying, you, know, you don't want to see your, your top end systems suffer. In that regard, and maybe even with the randonneur rider, you might argue, you might make the argument that they should do a little bit of intensity because don't those two systems yep. work in tandem? And if one goes up, the other can ha has the potential to go up as well. So they could improve endurance capacity even by uh, eliciting a response from the anaerobic system. I think so. Whenever I get asked this question, I always think of I, I had a... a friend that used to train with us who was a professional uh, Ironman athlete. And I remember one time where we, he rode with us for about an hour and he was like, I got to go do intervals. And we went, oh, what sort of interval work are you doing? And he goes, oh, three by one hours. <laughs> uh-huh. We're like, wait, that's intervals? Or What's just the a rest long period ride between... with a little bit of change in it? Yeah. Huh. So, yeah, I, you know, in terms of the thinking three years out, there's actually, you know, look at what Olympic athletes are doing. People are focused on the Olympics because they do a periodization that's, that's a four-year build that starts with the, the year after the Olympics, you tend to do an easier year. It's almost kind of a rest year. Then you do that year that's more focused on the aerobic work, build that system. And then the actual Olympic year, you bring the volume down and you're doing a lot of racing and it's kind of fine-tuning. But, Julie, very interesting to hear what you have to say about this. I don't think at any point in there they're not racing. 
they're not doing any sort of intensity. I think that would be a mistake. Mm-hmm. Julie, what do you think? Well, I guess, I mean, I think it's a bit different for someone that's, you know, training for mountaineering as opposed to like a, a cyclist. You know, because I feel like there's so many components that you have to train on the bike as a, just not not just, you know, these energy systems or these these intensities, but it's like your your mechanics and, and you know, your efficiency. And, and that's obviously a little different for for Ruben, who's who's more looking for the fitness. But I would I would agree with you in terms of the cyclist like training for the Olympics. You know, I think you just always you always have to be. And it's the, the mental side of it too, um, you know, like always be in touch with that intensity level and being able to, to mentally handle that intensity level as well for, for the race situations. All right. Shall we move on to some questions dealing a little bit more on the nutrition side of things? This question comes from another international listener, Clemens Plasser in Vienna, Austria. He writes... How is glycogen used during exercise? Are muscle and liver glycogen used in the same way? And can either store be, quote, refilled during exercise through nutrition? To rephrase the question, if muscle glycogen stores are emptied during a long ride, does this lead to a sudden fall in performance, even if blood glucose levels are held high through nutrition? Trevor, I know you are a wizard, of nutrition science. Let's start with you here. I know you've got some charts, some graphs. Hopefully you have a, like a laser pointer that nobody can see to work your magic. Uh, you're just doing this because you want to laugh at me again. No, that's not true. I would never want to laugh at you. So I have the... <laughs> <laughs> Oops, I laughed. <laughs> you couldn't even hold a straight face for two seconds. I have this thing that sometimes I read these questions that are sent and they get me thinking about something that I think is really interesting. And then somehow in my head, that becomes what the person asked. And then I go and research the thing that's in my head. And this was a classic case of this where I went and researched something I found really fascinating, found this really cool study. And then when I was pulling my notes together this morning, I reread the question and went, wow, he didn't ask a single one of the things I spent all last night researching. <laughs> so what you're going to hear is a short answer to his question and then a bonus answer to a really interesting topic that has nothing to do with what Clemens asked. Well, actually, all my notes are related to his question. Okay. At the end of it is just a little sigh. There's still <laughs> this cool stuff I could have told you about. All right, well, let's get into it. Uh, so I'll start this. And then, Julie, I know this is your area of expertise, so please jump in and... and take it away. So where to start? I guess the first thing to point out is your muscles have two sources for glucose. So let's just use the terms endogenous and exogenous. Mm -hmm. So endogenous would be its own internal stores or glycogen. And then exogenous would be glucose from the blood. Your muscles can't differentiate if that glucose came from the liver or if it came from glucose that you consumed. It just knows there's glucose in the blood. Important to know that you do not have transporters in your muscle cells to transport glucose out of the cells. So muscle cells are very selfish. They have transporters to take glucose. They don't have transporters to give it back. 
Uh, it, if you want to get really complicated, yes, once it's in the form of pyruvate or lact or actually lactate, really, uh, then it can be transported out of the cell, out of the muscle fiber, where it can then go to the liver and the liver can convert it back to glucose. So, but for right now, just let's go on the. Uh, muscles can take in glucose, they can't get rid of it. So the difference, he was asking what's the difference between its own uh, glycogen versus liver glycogen. Well, the differences are A, muscle cell doesn't know whether it came from liver glycogen or not, it just knows there's glucose in the blood. Uh, but it, if glucose is in, already inside the muscle fiber from its own glycogen, that muscle fiber has to use it. If it's in the blood, it has the choice of whether it uses it or not. Remember also the primary fuel of your brain is glucose. So your body wants to maintain a certain blood sugar level. So there is going to be a preference to say, please spare the glucose for the brain. If you have your own endogenous sources within the muscle cell, please use that first. Julie, thoughts? Well, I think, I, again, I kind of go back to it depends on the intensity in terms of the glycogen use. And again, I, I just find it fascinating, like with in the lab and, and um, the, how individual like people are metabolically and that, you know, these, these percentages of like 65% of VO2 and you're burning fat and this percentage and you're burning primarily carbohydrates. So I think that's like, the first thing I, I would mention is just, you know, what is, what is the intensity level? Um, and then, yeah, I think, I, I also think it's really interesting that if you do like supplement while you're exercising, it really preserves that the muscle glycogen in the liver, which can then be used like in, in terms of like a race situation, you know, you can really preserve that like as a reservoir um, for the end of the race. So um, I, th I think, you know, and I know there's a ton of studies on this, but there's so much, I think it's becoming complicated with all the new diets and the high fat and, um, all these new trends, but then you just go back and you look at all the good science and it all says the same thing in terms of, you know, pre, pre-exercise feeding and then during exercise. But I also do think we can get better at, at how efficient we are and then in terms of just preserving that glycogen for when we need it. So I get to quickly mention this study because it's one of the cooler studies I've read in a long time. It was led by a Dr. Andrew Bremer. And I'm going to say anybody who is interested, read this. Because uh, it talks, it was quite a surprising study. It was a nutrition study, but really focuses at the beginning on oxidization and RQ, all these things that you, you think of with, with uh, exercise science. Name of the study is Oxidative Priority, Meal Frequency, and the Energy Economy of Food and Activity. Uh, and brings up what you just mentioned, Julie, which is this, it's actually quite complex. And depending on what you put in your body, that's going to determine how your body uses the various fuels that are available. Give me an example. So they actually have this really cool graph uh, talking about you have to look at, you know, we always think about burning calories. Mm -hmm. 
And the when you really simplify it, you go, okay, well, if you're burning calories, you're you're losing fat. But they show in this graph that when you are doing intense exercise, you tend to prioritize using glucose. As Julie just said, intensity is a factor. Sure. Uh, and this is very individual, but um, if you take your average person and they start doing some intense exercise, they prioritize glucose. And that's actually going to downregulate your body's use of fat. So they show in this graph side by side somebody who's seated versus somebody who's exercising and show that uh, over the course of, the day, uh, of an hour, obviously the person, so they, they use the jogger. The jogger is going to burn a lot more calories, total calories, than the person just seated. But then the next graph over, they show how much of those calories came from fat. Mm. And actually, this is where you see it's not actually that different because mm. that jogger, uh, assuming they're going to sufficient intensity, um, prioritized. They were prioritizing carbohydrates and they actually didn't up the amount of fat they were burning that much from the, the seated individual. Mm -hmm. You said that. Maybe this is a, a bit of a tangent here, but you said that the the, the meal that you have right before you do an, a, a bit of exercise prompts the body to prioritize different fuels during the exercise. So are there, is that true? That could be that right? a factor. This was focusing, this study was focusing more on just in general. Okay. Uh, so there, I actually found this study because I was trying to look up um, so I'd always called it auto-oxidization hierarchy, which they mention in here, but it's actually in the title they called it oxidative priority, which is when you take in certain nutrients because you have a high ability to store some and a low ability to store others, your body's going to prioritize which it burns first versus which it stores. So, for example, you have no ability to store alcohol, so if you consume a mixed meal, so let's say the, the example they actually give in this re, uh, review is having a wine and cheese. So you have crackers, which are high in carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. You have cheese, which is high in fat and some protein. And then the wine is alcohol. And basically what they said is the first thing your body's going to do is burn that alcohol because it can't store it. It has to do something with it. You, so there's only whatever you take in calories, only three things you can do with it. You can burn it. You can store it or you can excrete it. We generally don't excrete, so you're generally looking at either you burn or you store. I didn't realize you could use alcohol as a fuel. Yep. Yep. Actually, you can. Sweet. That, that makes, that, that helps. So the order of priority. <laughs> no, Chris, do not go on your ride with a water bottle I'm having that. Be I'm having those two beers before I commute home. Uh, on my bike, people. Come on. But the order of priority of what your body's going to use first for basically process first uh, versus storing is alcohol, protein, carbohydrates, fat. So if you eat a meal with all those, basically it's going to take all that fat and go, okay, store this because we have right. unlimited fat storage. Right. And then we're going to prioritize the other stuff. Does this bring up the very big question of what should your pre-meal or pre-workout meal be? 
I mean, it's that's I know that that's not a simple answer whatsoever, but so we we've kind to? of gotten away from exercise here. <laughs> yes, I know. This is the stuff I was researching all last night. Going, oh my god, this is so cool! And then I read the question. I'm like, the question has nothing to do with this. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's all right. I mean, it still inter- makes for interesting conversation. But there is also that prioritization of, so what he was asking about glycogen versus exogenous glucose, how do you prioritize it? Again, this is getting off topic, but another important thing that for people to be aware of is we talk about, oh, if you eat a ton of sugar, it just gets converted to fat. Not actually accurate. Mm -hmm. We don't have a great ability to interconvert. So when you talk about, well, you eat a ton of sugar, it gets converted to fat. No, actually what's happening is you ate a ton of sugar, so your body's going to prioritize burning the sugar, and any fat you have in the system at the same time is just going to be stored. So it's not converted. It's just changing your priority. So Mm -hmm. same thing when you have glycogen stores, liver glycogen, muscle glycogen, and, and consume glucose your body's going to prioritize it based on the availability. Gotcha. Not going to convert that much. It's just going to prioritize. So when you have sugar, just have sugar. Don't have any fat anywhere around you because then you can't store anything. Just eat sugar. Is that what you're saying? Is that your nutrition recommendation for the day? (laughs) Lots of alcohol to burn through and sugar. That's what I'm hearing. From this discussion. Julie, apparently I'm completely unable to communicate here, so you want to correct that one? <laughs> um, well, I guess, you know, the way I see it, and it's exactly what you're saying, and it may be a super simple way to say it, but I feel like your, your body takes the path of least resistance. And I think, like, if you put a bunch of carbohydrates in, it's going to burn that. To your point, it's just going to burn it first because it's easy. Um, and I think, you know, I was, I was, I'd, mentioned, I'd thought about this in one of your earlier podcasts. I think you guys were talking about fasting. But I, I really think, um, and this is a name, this is a good name for you, Trevor, um, Asker Jukendrup. Oh, yeah. had him on the show. Louise Burke. You did? Yep. Yeah. I think that, I think they're, I love their work. I think they're so spot on in terms of, and I know I'm kind of on a tangent right now, but just periodizing the nutrition with the training. But, um, yeah, I guess I just feel like kind of back trying to get back to the question that the, the body is, is going to just take the path of least resistance and burn what's, what's accessible and easy. Let's get to Clemens, the, the second half of this question, Julie. If muscle glycogen stores are emptied during a long ride, does this lead to a sudden fall in performance, even if blood glucose levels are held high through nutrition? My my understanding is that the muscles will uptake that blood glucose, and um, so I, that's I mean the value of the exogenous feeding while while training is that you can the muscles do respond to that um, blood glucose. So I, I, that's my understanding, Trevor. What do you understand of that? I think it goes back to what you were saying before, uh, with, with your point about path of least resistance your body is going to go to highest availability first of your muscles and it's going to try to avoid fatigue that he was talking about or, or drop in performance so if muscle glycogen is readily available it's first going to prioritize that as it becomes less available it's going to say 
okay, let's take up blood glucose, but it, it doesn't want to starve the brain. So if muscle glycogen is low and blood glucose is low, then it's going to start prioritizing other fuels, which are hard to use. So it'll start using protein, particularly L-glutamine. It will uh, obviously use fat for fuel, but you can't do much high intensity with fat. So yes, at that point, performance is going to drop. And, and going back, you brought up Asker, you can droop. Yes, it's, it's going to try to use blood glucose. So consuming glucose is going to keep you going for a bit. But as he pointed out, you can only absorb so much in an hour. And we can burn, if we're doing high intensity, we can burn a lot more than we can absorb. So eventually you're just not going to be able to consume enough to keep up. And that takes us back kind of to the original question. If you're above that 85% of FTP, then you, your time to exhaustion is cut down and for several reasons, but one of them being nutritional. You can't keep up with the demands. Julie, anything else to add before we move to the next question? It is interesting to understand as you train, you become better at storing the glycogen and then also just taking it in in term with a mix of sucrose and fructose, you can absorb it better. So just different strategies in terms of increasing your storage ability. This episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from your workouts and the normal stressors of life. What's great with Whoop is that every day when you get up, you get a recovery score based on your HRV, resting heart rate, and sleep performance that can be used as an indicator to how to approach your day. The Whoop app has built-in features like the Strain Coach, which actually gives you target exertion goals worked out optimally for the level of intensity your body is signaling it can handle, perfect for working out at home. And based on how strenuous your day is, the app has a built-in sleep coach, which actually lets you know how much sleep you should be getting so you can wake up and be recovered based on your performance goals, which you can set. Whoop is offering 15% off with the code FASTTALK. That's F-A-S-T. T-A-L-K at checkout. Go to whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P dot com, and enter Fast Talk at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter. Optimize your performance with whoop. Our next question comes from James McKay, and he's in Yorkshire in the UK. It's a voice memo. We'll play it now. If I'm doing a large training volume, I can meet my fat and protein requirements quite easily through eating. And I can also meet, like, exceed the recommended 8 to 10 grams per kilo body weight for carbohydrate. I'm still left with quite a large number of calories after this, and I tend to eat them back mostly in carbohydrate. I find it helps recovery, and uh, I'm certainly not under stocking my glycogen levels, which is nice just for peace of mind, if anything. But... I didn't know if there was any benefit of eating more fats just because that's another energy source. I'm not at all interested in fat adapting. If anything, I'm more inclined to prioritize carbohydrate over fat to not blunt my ability to burn carbs for high-intensity efforts. How much fat is too much? At the moment, I'm eating about 0.9 to 1 grams per kilo of body weight fat, which is about 60 or 70 grams for me. And... Um, but sometimes I can be eating well over 800 grams of carbohydrate per day. 
my training is going well, but is that something I should be concerned for on, on a health level or just for a performance benefit? Would I be better eating more fat? So I have a longer answer for this, but I do want to address one thing first, which is, remember we talked about before, your fat stores in your body are essentially unlimited. So where we focus in endurance sports on replenishing glycogen, this is not an issue with fat, meaning eating more fat is not going to, for a couple hour race, improve your fat stores. That's just not an issue. So bearing that in mind, let me start now with my longer answer by giving my bias. We are too focused on carbohydrates, fats, protein. And should I be eating high carbohydrate, low carbohydrate? Should I be eating high fat, low fat? And that defines a healthy or unhealthy diet. I think that is the wrong way to look at diet. So my, unfortunately, my answer to this question is, he said, should I be increasing fat? Does that help my health? Does that help my performance? What's the source of your fats? Mm. What type of fats are you eating? And as a matter of fact, I was just looking for it. I can't express this enough. I found this review because I completely misread one of the questions, mm -hmm. uh, looked up something else, found this great review, and I am loving this review. As a matter of fact, after we record today, I'm going to go and read it again because it covers so many things that I love. Just going to say, you know what you're doing tonight. Yep. And uh, boy, I am really boring, aren't I? Yep. Why do I get more dates? Oh, uh, gosh. <laughs> How much time do you got, Trevor? I could do you want to come ways. read this study with me? <laughs> Let me read it to you. Okay, we just went down a bad road. <laughs> yeah. So I'm trying to find the exact quote, but he does, in the, or in the introduction, these authors state, they, they talk about two shifts in nutrition that they feel has led to a lot of the health issues and the obesity ep ep epidemic. And there's a better quote for it that I couldn't, I just can't find. But at the beginning they said, so with a shift away from... A sustenance and towards either pure palatability, it's basically saying we're just eating for taste, or specific nutrition, i.e. high protein diets, low fat diets, low carbohydrate diets, or combinations thereof. So one of the main themes of this review is a big part of what has led to our rise in disease states, our rise in obesity is simplifying diets down to high carb, low carb, high fat, low fat, high protein, low protein. Mm -hmm. If you read this whole right. review, they basically are saying, stop doing that. Yeah, placing and overemphasizing one macronutrient or another and, right. and focused way too much on something like that. So unfortunately, my answer to the question, that I'll, I'll let Julie take it, is I can't give you an answer when you're just saying, should I be increasing or decreasing the fat that I'm eating? Because I am all about what are the foods you're eating? Mm -hmm. Not, is it high fat? Is it low fat? Julie, what are your thoughts? As you said that, Trevor, it reminded me, I have a client that just went on a, not, he's been on it for probably, gosh, six months or so, but a plant-based diet and he's totally convinced it's the way to go. But you know, I think it's back to your point, like it's more than those macronutrients, it's the micronutrients. And those are so, those are like the most valuable players. That, and he's just, he's starving all the time, but he's, and he's just like, 
ravenous and can't get enough to eat and and but he's convinced it's the right thing for him um so i i agree with you i think there's too much focus on the macronutrients and i also think we're just we we really want to think in absolutes and it's kind of easier like oh i'm just going to do all this or all that and and i think we always need to think of context and like what are our goals because i think of just this kind of this whole high fat diet trend and you know if we think about like it was really initiated by the ultra runners and, and their, their demands are so different than, than a road cyclist, for example, where that endurance, that ultra endurance runner is typically running their events at that, you know, aerobic pace relying on those fats. Whereas the road cyclist is hitting every intensity level known to man and they need to be able to be flexible in terms of, of accessing those fuels. So I just think it is, it's so easy to, to, to want this one size fits all type type diet. And, and I think it's, it's confusing right now. There's, there's so much information out there and kind of conflicting information. All right. Let's, let's follow that up with a third and f- sort of final question here in the nutrition realm. This question comes from Dan Draper. He's in Salt Lake City, Utah. He writes, I try and eat mostly healthy. For example, healthy carbs, small portions of meat. I avoid fast and fried foods. I avoid highly refined grains and junk. But is it bad to eat whole wheat bread? I love it, and I feel really good after eating it. It helps me feel full. Would I be faster if I cut back or eliminated grains? And I included this because, well... I'm, I bet a lot of people have this same question. It's not a simple answer. You could talk endlessly about the debate here of what including grains in your diet does to you. Uh, we're looking for maybe a simpler answer. Trevor, I'll, I'll start with you on this one as well. So hard for me to answer this one because you know I have a giant bias. Yeah. My entire master's thesis was on the effects of wheat on health. And uh, let's just say I don't eat it. Mm-hmm. So... I am going to jump away from my bias. And since I have identified the fact that this review I read last night has probably the meaning of the universe in it. <laughs> you're more, least, your brain's halfway there, isn't it? I, I'm obsessed with it today. Like in a week, we're going to do an episode. Where I'm like, I'm sorry I quoted anything out of that study. But for right now, yeah, it, it actually has a great paragraph in here that I'm just going to read that actually quite effectively defines or or states what I would want to state. If you were a smarter, more handsome man. Yes, exactly. Right. Go for it. So it goes, perhaps there is further confusion resulting from the unintended consequences of aggregating whole food complex carbohydrates with highly refined grains and sugars, simply because they share the same defining glycosidic bond found in all carbohydrates. Not only does this detract from the important negative metabolic effects that excess simple sugar consumption has on hepatic stetosis and mitochondrial dysfunction, but it also obfuscates... Obfuscates. Thank you. The role that excess dietary protein in brackets, amino acids, alcohol, and carbohydrates play in driving dietary fat storage and interfering in stored adipose disposal through normal metabolic activities during the fasted state. I want to say that man needs a good editor 
he needs to add some punctuation in there. <laughs> that was so cool. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I would like you to um, restate that in your own terms. I mean, I, I get it, but I think that's a it's a it's dense. It's basically saying we are making a mistake by taking by simplifying foods into carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, as opposed to looking at something as a complex meal, a complex food, and and thinking we're talking about the the same thing. So, you know, going back to this question of he brought up carbohydrates, I eat healthy carbohydrates. Well, how do you know? Because you are taking a complex meal, a complex food, and simplify it to, well, it's carbohydrate. It's not. Yeah. You're not looking at the overall effects of uh, that, that bread. And this paragraph differentiates that complex food containing complex carbohydrates, such as vegetables, uh, and lumping it all together with these simple sources of carbohydrates which can have very negative health effects, which tends to be bread, and they can, you're talking basically about the same thing. Right. So the, my simple answer to this is uh, I think bread is a high caloric density, high glycemic index, low nutrient density food that will certainly provide you with glu quick glucose for exercise, but might have some negative health effects. And you need to look at it as a mo little more complex than just a, hey, here's a good source of carbohydrate. Yeah, I also kind of like this question only because it's, uh, it's a little unanswerable. Would I be faster if I cut back on grains? There's, who could say? Nobody could say that. Yeah, that's, can't answer that. Yeah. And again, that's trying to simplify it down to, well, this is going to make it faster, that's going to make it faster. Well, if you have celiac disease, no, it's not going to make you faster at all. Mm -hmm. Everybody's individual. I, you know my bias against wheat, mm -hmm. but even removing that bias, you just can't answer that question. Right. Yeah. Julie, anything to add to this discussion here? Nutrition can, can become an obsession. And I think, it's again, it's important to, to figure out individually what works best for you and based on your goals and you know, I, I agree, like there's, you know, not all carbohydrates are created equally and you can make better choices. But I think, you know, in terms of trying to get faster, trying to make good choices and everything in moderation so you can, you know, fuel your body so you can train harder to get faster. And I think oftentimes we get a little sidetracked with so much focus on Nutrition, of course, it's important, but at the end of the day, it's, it's doing your body well so you can train harder and recover better, and that's going to make you faster. Well, let's wrap up this episode with a final question. This one has to do with the effects of injury on, on power output, on uh, performance. It comes from Tom in Horwich. Tom was injured at the time he wrote this uh, 11 weeks previously after hitting a cat Damn, that cat. That ran out on him into the road. He crashed badly on his side. X-rays showed no broken hip, which he had previously broken in 2018. He took three weeks off the bike completely. When he rode us, he was a further 10 weeks on from that point. Despite rigorous physical therapy and an, advi an advised exercise program, his hamstrings were still sore. So his questions are, whilst I am now hitting the same power numbers in training, my heart rate is higher for the same power, which suggests I have lost some fitness 
and not yet regained it, aside from the loss of aerobic fitness due to time off the bike initially. How much could the ongoing muscle and tendon weakness be affecting the physiological expenditure for a given power output? My power meter suggests I am still fairly balanced left-right, but heart rate is perhaps 10 beats higher at sustained sweet spot and threshold efforts. If a muscle is pulled or strained, strained, but I still have the aerobic capacity to do the effort, then what mechanism is causing the increased heart rate? Julie, would you like to start us off with this one? I will. My my answer might be a little bit of a a little bit of a tangent, but I always think of like an injury as an opportunity to come back better and more functionally fit. And so, I guess I just think that, and it's obviously it's, it's challenging from here to understand, you know, exactly what's going on physically and in, in his his physical therapy and his recovery. But I think it just it just takes time. Um, but I do think, again, an injury is that opportunity to come back functionally more fit. And so perhaps, you know, the, the body is just not neuromuscularly firing quite the way it did prior to the, the injury. I also, you know, I also wonder in terms of like his hamstrings being irritated, you know, if anything's changed with bike fit. I, and then I think about like posture on the bike and how important that is in terms of, you know, ensuring that the big muscle groups are firing, like the, the glutes um, versus a posterior tilt and, and too much reliance on hamstrings. So I think just that those are some things that came into my mind in reading this question. Yeah, Trevor, what do you think? Yeah, you know, the first thing I wrote in my notes was to actually ask a question back, which is, he made the statement that he, he's still aerobic. He still has the aerobic capacity, fitness to do this. My question is, are you sure? Mm -hmm. If your heart rate's 10 beats per minute higher, how do you know all that work is still being produced aerobically? Uh, maybe you're, you're producing that power differently. And so it's not the, 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 the same thing, even though you're at the same wattage. Right. Well, but, Tom isn't here to answer that question for us, unfortunately. So we don't know. But no, I think, Julie, you made a great point that, that you should view an injury as an opportunity to come back stronger. And the, the main thing I had to bring up is there's, I think, two phases to recovery from an injury. There's the acute side. You actually have the muscle damage that has to be repaired. But in physiology, you tend to talk about neuromuscular units. There's a whole neurological side. And my experience is you, the muscle itself might heal, but it takes much longer to get that neuromuscular firing pattern going correctly again. Any suggestions on what he should do then to, to get back to that previous level, assuming that he can? Actually, Julie, what are your thoughts on, as you said, this is an opportunity to get better. What are, what are the opportunities here? I mean, for me, you know, I think like I'm such a proponent of off bike trunk stability, hip stability, mobility, you know, strength work. And I think it's unfortunately the first thing, like it often slips through the cracks when we we're busy and all we really want to do is ride our bike more. But I do think again, like this, like 
that's when we're injured or in pain, it is we're more motivated. So I'm just, I think a, a good, consistent trunk stability program, and it's not with, you know, extension and flexion through the spine, but more being able to find that, that neutral spine and engage it and hold it um, muscularly. And then the hip, hip stability, you know, making sure like the, the glute medius is firing. So the glute max has that, that stable platform to direct the force. So to me, it's this attention to detail that, that really makes the difference, making sure the body is really firing as a unit and, and doing some, some single leg strength work. And perhaps he's doing that in his physical therapy, but then I think you're able to see those imbalances and really use this time to get the body back in balance. I would agree with that. The last thing I just wanted to add, because he brought up what is driving up the heart rate. And I, I think in the question, he kind of assumed, well, I've lost aerobic fitness. I wouldn't necessarily say that. I would say there's three potential things that could drive up heart rate uh, relative to wattage. Yes, one is loss of aerobic fitness, and there's likely some of that. Uh, a second one, my experience is when somebody is... It takes a long rest, whether forced or at a choice. Um, when you come back, you tend to see max heart rate go up. And as a result, your all your heart rate ranges go up. So you do have to adjust them slightly uh, when you come back for an injury or extended period of time off. The last one is going back to what we were just talking about with the recruitment patterns is muscle recruitment drives heart rate. The more fibers you recruit, the, the higher your heart rate goes. So if your neuromuscular firing pattern is not optimal, you may have to recruit more muscle mass, more fibers in order to produce the movement. If that's the case, that's going to drive heart rate up. Yes, that's a sign that you have some work to do, but it might not be that you've necessarily lost aerobic fitness. You may have to do exactly what Julie's talking about, really work on that, that muscle firing patterns. Well, thank you, Julie, uh, for joining us and sharing your wisdom with us today. It's been a pleasure. So appreciate the opportunity. Great having you on the show. We appreciated it. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at fastlabs.com or record a voice memo on your phone and send it our way. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. Subscribe to our newsletter by visiting www.fastlabs.com. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Julie Young and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.